We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. Hey, Home Where You Belong listeners. I have a great deal to share with you. Audible is now offering a 30-day free trial that allows you to explore its incredible selection of audiobooks and podcasts across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to memoirs, mysteries, and thrillers. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. For details, visit audibletrial.com belong. That's audibletrial.com belong. Now, on with today's show. I had a vision that things could be better, a vision and a belief that things could be better. I felt inside that there was something better out there, but it takes a lot of work to not just put a Band-Aid over a bad situation. And so I wanted a transformation and not a Band-Aid. You can't feel at home without first feeling safe. Perhaps no one understands that better than Lizbeth Meredith, While working as a domestic abuse survivor advocate as a single mom in her late 20s, her two young daughters were kidnapped by their father and taken out of country. What followed was a two-year-plus ordeal that required her to find and use her own voice. Lizbeth shared her story of pain, perseverance, and resilience in her award-winning book, Pieces of Me, Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters, which was adapted into the Lifetime television movie, Stolen by Their Father. Today, she is a sought-after speaker, online teacher, coach, and host of the weekly podcast, Persistent You with Lizbeth. Lizbeth, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have you as a guest on Home Where You Belong. Oh, Chip, thank you so much for having me. I was tickled to be asked. Well, let, let's get um, right into it. Um I, I think I told you I recently binge listened to your book on Audible. I was up to like 4 a.m. It was so kind of intriguing and c- such a great story. Hard to hear, but ultimately left me feeling encouraged and inspired. So um, I, I guess, was it a difficult decision to write the book? It's a very personal story. And, and what was that process like? It was not a difficult decision to write the book as much as it was difficult to write the book. <laughs> to do it, yeah. <laughs> the deciding was the fun part. <laughs> All of the rest for two decades, that was rough. That was tough, yeah. It was. And I felt like there were so many takeaways that re- people in life could have about when we all go through hard mm. times. But I didn't realize how very exposed I would feel when it actually came to publishing it. So it was a long process. I wasn't good at writing. I had to take class after class and get critiqued. And But still, when I was finished, I was so thankful that I'd done it. Was it, was it a, I'm, I'm sure, as you said, it was difficult to go through, but did you find parts of it healing for just kind of getting it out and, and getting through it? or I really did. I feel like... Um, I learned more about the people in my life. Some, uh, even some of the hard things that happened, 
let's say, circumstances with my mom, I kind of developed a new empathy in the investigation mm. portion of writing the book. You can learn a little bit more. Right. Looking back, maybe, than when you're in the, in the thick of it. Exactly <laughs> right. And also putting yourself in that person's shoes and thinking, mm, you know, there were different circumstances that I was aware that were going on. Absolutely. You, I was kind of even amazed as, as, as challenging as the, the, the subject matter was, which we'll get into, um, you also had some humor in there, which I found, Good. you know, I found myself laughing out loud, even in the midst of, you know, kind of a challenging story. But Thank you. That was so important <laughs> to me because I feel like we need to be made to feel safe when yeah. we're learning about difficult stories. And also, no matter what happens in our lives, there's always something funny in the middle of it, too, whether we're at a funeral or whatever. There's always a chance, and why not take the chance to laugh? If I couldn't laugh, there's a lot of things I don't think I could have gotten through, so right. that's, that's good advice. Well, let's talk about uh, the subject matter a little bit. Um, I, I said a little on the intro, but um, you had been divorced from your husband for several years when he kidnapped your daughters, which is... Um, Terrible, frightening. Um, as you share in the book, he had been abusive to you uh, physically, mentally, emotionally during your marriage. I, I guess maybe starting out, looking back as you did the writing process, were there any red flags that you missed in the relationship, you think? Absolutely. And I even knew that probably earlier on than writing the book because okay. I worked with domestic violence survivors. That's right. That's right. But there were so many missed opportunities. And even, uh, you know, as I was preparing to move to Chattanooga, I found a couple of old letters from concerned friends who had said, hey, are you sure you want to do this so quickly? And I must have put my fingers in my ears and just plugged them. But the fact that I met someone who immediately seemed to love everything about me and wanted me to be with him 24-7 and Mm. wanted that quick commitment And I just thought, aren't I lucky? I have someone Mm. who loves me, and I don't have to learn to adult on by my own. And, you know, how fortunate am I to have met this person who thinks I hung the moon? Well, we don't know someone within a few months. We really don't. So there were many missed opportunities. So in hindsight, maybe you would have taken a little more time. Um, but you were, young, you were young, pretty young, right, when I you got married? I was not just young, but I was not confident. I was inexperienced okay. in the world of dating uh, and, and looking for those red flags. And I think when I talk to younger crowds now, because I do university talks and, and talk to younger people about relationships, the most important person you can know when getting into a relationship is yourself. Mm. I did not know myself whatsoever. I had no sense of strength no sense of what I was capable of, good or bad. Mm. And, you know, I just, I was fearful from a home life that didn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in hindsight, missed many red flags, and I mm. always hope that other people take the time. If something's meant to last forever, my goodness, you can take yeah. your time. <laughs> take your time to make sure it's, it's the right thing. That's right. Um, well, it, it sounds like Unfortunately, your husband took advantage of, of that situation and um, was was abusive to you. Without going into a lot of details about that, what, what were some of the hardest things, I guess, about your marriage and kind of what finally made you decide, hey, enough? Enough, <laughs> enough, enough. I think... One hard thing that I carried into that marriage was the commitment to be different than the childhood home I'd grown up in. And so I was determined that if I made my bed, I would lie in it. So really, day number one, even at the wedding, 
he started with some pretty awful behavior. So there wasn't that beautiful, magical day. It started off scary. And wow. he started disappearing from the home and not coming home overnight or calling or whatever. Week number one. Wow. Week number one. Then there were the, you know, general insults about me. Some, I'm not saying they were all uh, untrue because he would say things like, you know, you're terrible at doing laundry. You, you know, you're a terrible cook. These are true facts because I hadn't done these things before so well. You know, it always just mashed my laundry together. Chipping away at your confidence. Chipping away, and I didn't think anything of it except for, he's not wrong. I'll get better with time. Um, You know, I'll keep moving forward and doing what I can to make him happy. But what I didn't realize is that when someone is a more abusive and controlling personality, they're always going to find a reason to make the other person they're with feel small. So it doesn't matter what I did. He would find something different. I mean, I got to the ridiculous point of making a pound cake. One of his favorite things was a pound cake. So I'd bake a pound cake and have it ready when he got off work by midnight because that was his shift. Stay awake. I had to be at work by 6 a.m. And, of course, it was so devastating when he wouldn't come home or when he didn't acknowledge it or whatever, but I just kept trying to bend myself into a pretzel to make something that wasn't workable work. Was it, so was it a particular incident, or was it just finally after time you just realized this is not going to change and I don't want a life like this? Well, often in this kind of a circumstance, and certainly in mine, things get worse over time. Sure. So what started out as general insults became total control of finances, of you know accusations that I'd been with someone else, and you know kind of controlling the purse strings so deeply that I had no money. I had a baby and I was pregnant with a second one, but I didn't have enough to feed and diaper the first one, much less feed the baby that was gestating. So it was the day, this is going to sound terrible and I hope it's Uh. not too triggering, but one day he injured me. I won't, I will just put it that way. He injured me in front of my two-year-old and it was in some ways the best thing because I was such a concrete thinker that I thought, well, it's better for kids to grow up in a home where there's no divorce. It's better for kids to have both parents. Sure. But once it reached the point where my life was in jeopardy, I was like, this is not, not good. If you're not there, right? That's right. It's not gonna be. This is not good. Yeah. So I decided that day. And I I didn't just decide that day that I was leaving him. I decided I wouldn't be the doormat any longer mm. in my life. I would s- stop that. I would stop that behavior because it was kind of more pervasive than just him. I was always making myself small to make sure that bigger personalities felt good. Taking care of everybody else. And so it was a huge thing. I decided to go for a transformation and not just leave a relationship. Right. Well, uh, unfortunately, his abusive um, nature didn't stop. I mean, when you made that decision, which was obviously the right one for you and your daughters, um, he continued to be you know, abusive and make your life difficult. And then the eventual kidnapping. Um, Can you just share uh, some of the details of how the kidnapping happened and, you know, why bringing your daughters home was so challenging? At first, I just, when I read the book, I thought, well, they're in Greece, you know, that's, that shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I I read this, also saw the movie, Not Without My Daughters, where I ran and, you know, I understood maybe why that could be more difficult. But I just had no idea until I read your book, the challenges that go with that. But maybe going back to the the kidnapping part, what 
walk us through kind of what happened that day or and you bring up such a good point that I want to come back okay. to in a, in a minute about the parental part also of an okay. abduction because okay so for 4 years I I left in 1990 I'm going to say I was in my mid 20s uh-huh. I had two little kids had to go you know embrace poverty stay in a shelter enroll for college did all the right things I tried to make good decisions sure and because even then I was a pleaser <laughs> Didn't want to be that unlikable victim that goes back and forth and back and forth because people are so critical of them. What I didn't realize at the time was leaving an abusive relationship doesn't guarantee that you're going to be safe. In fact, often it is Mm. the trigger that something much worse will follow. So that whole saying that sometimes people who are abusive will say, if I can't have you, no one else will, well... For years, for four solid years, he did things like try to break into the home, slash my tires, leave threatening messages on the voicemail, the old-fashioned answering machines that we had then, tell the children scary things about me, like mm. your mother is going to die, she's just not going to want you anymore. They're a little bitty Horrible, girls, yeah. but I had to let him see the kids. So four years after I left him, I was finished with my degree, had a job that I loved working with survivors of abuse, and so proud of the little life we had on 10 bucks an hour. Did a lot of work to get to that point. Yes, I was a sole supporter on $10 an hour, but I lived with a roommate who was like a grandma to my kids. What people should know about abusive relationships is the more powerful the victim is the more threatened the abuser is you and challenge so, them yes, yeah, stood yes. up to them yeah so i might maybe could have thought that this might happen but one day i went to pick our children up from daycare my their father my former husband um had chi- you know time to see the kids and they weren't at the daycare mm. and they not only weren't at the daycare he'd not even called the daycare and then i went and found out eventually that he'd moved out of the apartment he was in and this was a long time ago. Police response was very different mm. then. But, you know, at first I looked and sounded to the police department like a hysterical, histrionic sort of mother. As anybody would. I would right, think, right, that right, yeah. right. But they're like, you know, ma'am, you could be more generous with his time, with the kids. It's <laughs> his children. And, they you know, know the whole they did yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. And they were not excited to know it. Yeah. And then eventually they were like, oh, okay, never mind. But that started a process and I would say as far as parental abductions a lot of times kids will hear if this has happened to them whether they've gone to California from Alaska or Kentucky from Tennessee or whatever people will say well at least it's just the mother or at least it's just the father and I will tell you that most kids I mean kids need to feel safe by their parents they don't need to be snuck and spirited away and also it can be very difficult state to state with kidnappings, as much as it is country to country, I definitely dealt with resistance mm. from our local police department as well as the State Department wasn't quite super smooth on what needed to happen. They were wonderful. They tried to be wonderful, and I appreciate them. But it's hard. These are hard situations. And so I made 10 bucks an hour. It was a $100,000 problem. So I didn't have the uh, family resources Ooh, at resources, that point yeah. to really you know, write out big checks. So the community got involved, and it was pre-internet for the common people, and it was amazing what happens when you reach out for support and other hands, some who don't even know you, grab. Well, yeah, you, that's um, 
was a really interesting part of your story. I mean, people forget, you know, before social media and the internet, you know, maybe how hard it is to rally that support right. quickly or in a, you know, but um, yeah, it sounds like you had some really good friends and colleagues who, who helped that. Right. One of the things, though, you, and you alluded to this, it, the kind of infuriating things about the book when I was listening, um, is that some of the very people who should have helped you, like local enforcement, law enforcement, um, government officials, the courts, uh, even your own mother, mm -hmm. sometimes were the very obstacles <laughs> that kept you from making progress. Did, how did you deal with that? Did you, and I guess is that's what eventually kind of helped you develop your persistence? And It really did. I think one of the things that was so helpful was I had by a miracle chosen to work with domestic abuse survivors. So I was more familiar with the judges and the courts and sure. how things can go wrong. And I had some in good relationships with police and it didn't always pay off at all. But at, at that point, you know, uh, but really working in that very system it helped me not personalize it so mm. much but it also gave me a platform sure. so i was often giving presentations for law enforcement back then at new academies and judges and this and that and in some ways it gave me a little bit of a voice and i learned the way there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it but the way to get results and like you said i had amazing support at the place that i worked had a wonderful uh, mentor, Heather Flynn was her name, mm. but just fabulous. She was well-connected. People who believed in me and old friends and, you know, people who said, no, this should not happen, and what can we do? That's and awesome. that was beautiful, and I couldn't have done it without them. I'm not a superhero, but with support, it's amazing what all of us can accomplish. Ab absolutely. And that's kind of one of the things you talk about in your book is – You've got to reach out and ask for help, right. even when that's that's difficult, right? Mm -hmm. You do, and you have to accept help even when it's imperfect, because mm. it's not going to be yeah. a perfect, let's say, community mental health, or it's not going to be a perfect whatever, but you still need to work with what's out there and maybe help with improvements later. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, if I remember correctly, so the the process of, of getting your daughters back, you you know, were working with lawyers, and you traveled to Greece and thought you were getting them back. Didn't happen. Right. Had to go back. How, how long did the process actually take, and what was what eventually helped you be successful in bringing them home? Wow, I think it took more than two years. So wow. my children no longer spoke the language that I did when I finally arrived and got to see them. In the midst of all this, and spoiler alerts, but I got arrested at one point oh. and met great people in Greece, wonderful people, some who I'm still in contact with, who were so helpful. They got, they benefited. I didn't pay them. They benefited in no way, but cared so deeply that this wrong be corrected. So what really, really helped, part of it, it's going to sound terrible, but I was a young mother when I had my kids. I didn't have anything else. <laughs> and this was it. This was yeah. a fight for their lives and my life. This was a chance for me to write some of the things that I'd done wrong in my youth okay. and to give them an opportunity for a future that they deserved and not just the one that they inherited. And so I think, you know, my mom had done something similar with me when she, when I was a child, took some of her kids from her respective husbands, disappeared, left others behind. And one of those kids was you, right? Yes. I mean, you were... The damage, kidnapped, exactly, right? and the damage that does can never be corrected, mm. can never be, not enough counseling, not enough good experiences will ever, ever 
wipe that clean. And so I knew it was dire with their dad, mm. especially. So it really helped. Okay. In listening to your book, I, I really thought the, the last time that you went to Greece and were working through the court system, it seemed like you were going to win that ruling. But unfortunately, you know, that didn't happen. Correct. And for, you know, all the wrong reasons. But so tell us what you had to do to actually get them out. Where, where did you go and how did that happen? Because that well, was kind of a harrowing story in itself. It was. It's You know, it's funny because when I watched the movie based yeah. on the book, that still upsets me. I mean, it start, <laughs> I guess. the movie started with that scene and it still makes me kind of sick. But yes, the court hearing, that final court hearing we had went so beautifully. I was fortunate to have an amazing and generous a couple of attorneys from Alaska who were personal friends one of whom flew to Greece on his own money, on his own dime, twice, and participated in these hearings. There were smart and wonderful lawyers from Greece who were there. And things looked rock Good. solid, yeah. rock solid. And then to find out that the courts a couple of weeks later ruled like, well, it's unfortunate, but kind of doesn't matter how they got to Greece. They've been here two years, so the mother will need to relinquish the kids and leave them behind, but she can come back next fall and do this all over. And you're like, no, I've been, yes. down, I've been down that road. We're yes. Not, yeah. By the time that all of that happened, um, I already had friendships in Greece and friends in Athens and Thessaloniki, but we'd. one of my friends was insistent that I start thinking about a plan B. Yeah. And I was sure at first, like, that's ridiculous. This is going to go exactly as we thought. It's going to be great. You're wrong. And she was correct. I got the ruling that the courts had ruled against me. And so we employed a plan B. And it was so scary. And it meant that I would take my children and slide through Turkey by boat. Turkey was, at the time, not considered a very great place for a single woman and children to be. The State Department had recommended against it. But that's what we did. And then came home and later fought it out through federal court. Hmm. Wow. That's that's quite quite a story um you, you mentioned a minute ago the the television movie your book uh, eventually ended up being adapted for for television it's a lifetime television movie called um stolen by their father perfect right? yep okay. you got it um can you tell us a, a little bit about that how that happened and sure. what was that process like because it must be kind of both you know exciting but scary in the same way seeing your life kind of on yes. TV. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was so fortunate because I it's, my memoir is indie published, so it's okay. a, from a nobody author uh, to a small publisher. You know, it, it wouldn't necessarily, I would think, have been a movie, but I had in my mind, you know, I, I had in my mind, I think it would make a good movie. Oh yeah. But first, it, the book comes out, not you know, gets some traction, especially in Alaska, where people remember the situation occurring. But I kept marketing and marketing and marketing. I really worked hard at it. A couple of years, it took a couple of years after the book had come out, I really started seeing results and more reviews, which customer reviews are the most important thing, makes your b- book visible. Mm. So I got contacted by a company uh, via my website and they're like, hey, is your movie, has your book been an option for a movie yet? <laughs> and I thought, okay, scammers, because you get a lot oh, of yeah. that as an author, right? You yeah. get a lot of that. So I was like, oh, sure, I roll, you know. And so later I realized, oh, this is a real company. It's a wonderful production company in Canada. And so this was 2018. 
I was on a trip. I was in South America uh, by myself. <laughs> and uh, so conversations started. It took about a year of conversations via email, fits and star- starts and stops. But my publisher and myself uh, and the producer from mm-hmm. Cineflix ag- made an agreement that we would enter into a movie option. I d- most of the times when mo- books are optioned, they don't ever happen. In fact, sometimes publisher mm-hmm. or production companies option books to shut it down mm. because something similar There's is about other to come project. out. That's yep, right. I've heard that. So I didn't think to myself, this is surefire, but the producer was such a great man and he loved the story. He was very committed to it. Nice he, to be recognized for the, you know, oh, that's a story. Him. Yeah, it yeah. really touched him. And he would quote the book to me sometimes. And I think, well, that's so nice, but I really... Still to this day, I'm like, that is wonderful, but wow. So, you know, COVID came and I thought, well, this is for sure the end of that. And then they optioned a second time. And for an author who typically we pay money to get our books out there and market them, we do. Even if we don't mean to, it costs us money. money, And uh, so I was thrilled with that. But then they went into production right when I moved to Chattanooga. You know, it was like, oh, they're re- oh, in the middle of the pandemic, and they not only went into production, they went to Greece, and so some of the places that they filmed were on place- location. Yes. Yeah, it was. It gave me goosebumps. Yeah, I guess one thing I should mention, and I'm not sure I did earlier. I, your husband is is Greek, right? That's why yes. he took them back, and he had family there. Or my or husband is Greek. Your ex-husband, my I should former say. husband. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that too. My former <laughs> husband is Greek and he was a United States citizen when I met him. Mm. And as a young person, a very concrete mind, I thought problem solved. I, there's nothing, no threat. You know, everything's yeah, yeah. great because he was a U.S. citizen already when I met him. Um, but yes, that's why he took them to Greece. His family, and I can say this with utter confidence, had no idea that he was going to show up in Greece with the kids. Wow. He used other people to plan with. I, you know, later found that out, but his family was not those people. It's not the initial people that helped It him. was horrifying for them. I mean, because <sighs> what do you do when your family member <laughs> shows up and has these kids, but you're like, wait a minute. I mean, I'm not privy to their divorce arrangement, but we didn't even know he had a second daughter. Oh, my goodness. So, Yes. It was horrifying for so many people. I think that's the thing about crime in general is like it doesn't just impact me and my kids. They're schoolmates. A lot of wreckage that comes with that. Yeah, his family even. Devastated. Well, earlier you mentioned that, um, unfortunately, your marriage wasn't your first experience with domestic violence. um, And your daughter's ordeal wasn't your first experience with kidnapping. Unfortunately, you were taken away by your mother, right? Yes. you survived both of those in your childhood. Can you can you just share a little bit about that? As far what what impact do you think that had on what happened to you as you, as an adult? Right, and I definitely always want to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of times offenders and survivors of abuse don't come from bad childhoods. They really sure. don't all. Sure. But for me, it I remember when I met my husband, it felt like home. And I should have run screaming from the room uh, right at that moment. Because <laughs> your home was not always a, a warm and welcoming no. place, right? Yeah. It was very chaotic, and I was a definitely, definitely a judgmental little kid. And I remember thinking, whatever these clowns are doing, I'm doing different. Yeah. I want to have kids. They'll never experience divorce. There won't be all of this chaos, screaming, sometimes violence, separation of siblings very early on. Nope. I will have kids and just do it perfectly. And sure enough, 
within nanoseconds from becoming an adult, I was, you know, at the battered women's shelter with two little kids. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it definitely seemed familiar. And I hadn't done it. It doesn't mean that it's an inevitability if someone uh, is in a horrible childhood and they, they grow up and they do sure. replicate it. That isn't true. But I hadn't done any of the work. I hadn't been very cognizant of it. I hadn't been thoughtful. I never claimed it, even back then. As I don't. So think maybe I, you were more vulnerable. Yeah, to it then, I was because I hadn't. Okay. I hadn't kind of given my childhood, frankly, an autopsy, mm-hmm. to look at what went well and what did not, and how can we prevent this from happening and replicating it. Be nice if we could all do that when we're young adults, right? It I seems know. like <laughs> if we could look back in time, but it exactly. doesn't always work that way. No, I did none of it, and then walked right into this. <laughs> but despite that, it. I didn't see your book, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you don't, as a as a tragedy. I mean, it was right. a very difficult and horrible thing that happened, but it was really about perseverance and resilience and people that did come to your aid and help you, and you were ultimately successful. Right. Um, what are some of the, just the, you know, I know there's not one thing, there's a whole lot of things that contributed to that, but what are some of the key things that really you think helped you move toward healing and kind of finding your own voice? That is such a good question, Chip. And I feel like I had a vision that things could be better, a vision and a belief that things could be better. I felt inside that there was something better out there. But it takes a lot of work to not just put a Band-Aid over a bad situation. And so I wanted a transformation and not a Band-Aid. And so I really had to humble myself and say, "Here's here's a handful of things I don't know that I need help with. Parenting. Don't know how to do it well um, at all. And, okay, relationships. I need, you know, all therapy. I need to do, I need to You started learn. reaching out for help. I really did. I learned how to get off public assistance when I was on it. I started going to support groups on how to make sure that not only did I get off public assistance, but that I never went back. Right. Some of it was luck because there were more resources that I knew I wouldn't be dependent upon, but that I could use in the transition. I always want to point that out, that resources to help people rebuild their lives are very important. Absolutely. And so it really, just having the humility and knowing that I had mapped out a better future, and it wasn't going to be a matter of would we succeed with certain baseline things, but how would we accomplish those things? Okay. And it didn't come seamlessly, and I didn't parent perfectly. And in fact, I think one of the hardest things looking back on is I... I parented my kids when they came home, like, hey, kids, a whole bunch of people did a whole bunch of things to get you back. Make sure it's worthwhile. (laughs) And I didn't mean to, but I did. I put that pressure on these traumatized kids thinking, okay, you're back. Zip it. I'll take you to play therapy. But outside of that, let's get moving forward. You probably didn't have the here's the 101 things you have to do after your kids are kidnapped. Right. Guidebook. Exactly. (laughs) And now we know like things in the in the field of psychology. It wasn't till the end of my career in probation where I was learning about trauma informed care. And I became an instructor on that. The adverse childhood experiences study. And I got to become a trainer of that. I want to. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. But you mentioned trauma informed care and and. I heard a little bit about that, but can you tell us what does that what does that mean? What is that about? When you meet someone who really doesn't matter whether they seem quote unquote normal or if they're you know having yeah. behaviors at work where you're looking at them thinking heavens, mm. what is going on? Instead of thinking what's wrong with you, what's wrong with that person? You're rather thinking, I wonder what happened to them. 
I wonder what happened to them. And it doesn't mean you give up accountability because I'm a big, huge believer in accountability. But on the other hand, that you factor those things in and you don't take it personally. So your own response may be more gentle and empathetic, not sympathetic, but empathetic. And you also know if it's not personal and you can be more empathetic, you can factor those things in in the solution even if no one has said to you like hey i'm going through this hideous divorce mm-hmm. or whatever you can still look at someone as a whole person and mm-hmm. know that this may not be their best moment mm-hmm. and proceed i would never say to a young girl dating or you know or thinking about dating well that person that you know he's had such a hard childhood or this person that you're selecting has really gone through so much so just give him a break I don't mean that. That puts more pressure on the, uh, on the exactly, victim. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But rather, you know, we look at people as whole individuals. Doesn't mean we have to be the one to rescue yeah. them. It's their job to rescue them. It yeah. is their job to get the uh, transformation going and seek services. And uh, it is that's not a, our job to try to fix. That's a good good piece of advice there. Now, um, are focusing, if I'm correct, on your writing. You also do coaching with individuals and um, a lot speaking um, as well. Um, how, how do you think you've leveraged some of the difficult lessons that you learned along the way in the journey to kind of now become what you call a superpower in, in <laughs> helping other people? Thank you, or helping them find their superpower and yeah. things that have happened. I think when I was writing the book, it occurred to me because I never wanted to be someone who was defined by some awful thing that happened in my life. And for the rest of my life, I would only think about this terrible thing. I just never wanted to be that person. But then I realized there were so many good byproducts Mm. of going through hard circumstances. And for all of us, that's true. We can take our challenges and try to leverage them into superpowers. So personally for me, Mm. it was even things like, and now I'm much closer to a lot of my family, not all of them, but a lot of them. But uh, at the time when I didn't have them, having to go through different services, even government mm-hmm. services, housing, public assistance, that was really helpful. I How learned to work that network and I get through l- it. Yes, yeah. get through it and not go back to it. I don't mean that. But no, I don't yeah. mean spend my lifetime being needy. But on the other hand, I had to learn some really big things. But I also didn't give up control to relatives. Mm. I'm not saying they would have leveraged that, but they might have. A lot of times people do accidentally. You're staying in my house. You need to do this. You need to believe this. You need to. Sure. So I love that I ended up being a little bit more able to land on my feet. I realized that I loved solo travel. And I'd never gone anywhere until my kids had, you know, till the whole thing with Greece. But heavens, I've been to six of the seven continents. That's awesome. And I learned, I have no sense of direction. Like I told you, I got <laughs> lost on the way here. <laughs> just, I'm with you. I'm with you on that it's one. It's day yeah. to day. Thank, thank God for GPS. <laughs> when, G- <laughs> when GPS goes down, I mean, Work. I literally pulled over when I got to Chattanooga one time and it wasn't working and I started to cry. Oh. I was like, I cannot do this. I can't get home. <laughs> I don't know where I live. How do you tell someone when you're an adult? Yeah. I don't. Could you tell me where I live? They're like, where do you live? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but then you but, think back on what you have yes. overcome, and then you realize that's yeah. probably not, you know, but it... It wasn't ideal, but you know what? I can get lost. I can be lost here in Chattanooga. I could be lost in Vietnam. Yeah. It doesn't matter, you know? I learned to make connections, and I kind of learned to trust my judgment about which ones to give up. Mm. There are people in fr- friendships, I, I don't know, I call them friendships, but you, we all meet people who can be a little bit toxic. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was super helpful is just learning to trust my judgment on that. But I had to develop that or I would have never been able to reunite with my kids. Absolutely. How are your kids doing today? They're adult daughters now? They are. They're in their 30s. The little one is coming to visit next week. I'm awesome. so excited. She's been here before. She'll always be the little one, she's too. She's the yeah. baby, even though she's in her 30s. I'm 60, but I'm still the baby in the I family. I love it. <laughs> yes. Yes. It never I stops. I totally get it. <laughs> so she's coming to visit. She's, you know, she struggles. Both have big impact for what sure, happened. Yeah, you can't Hers is physical health. Hmm. She has a lot of physical challenges that she manages, but she manages them well. Mm-hmm. Both girls have finally finished college. Yes, yes, a single mother's dream. You awesome. know, from a family where my parents didn't graduate high school, it uh, initially they it's couldn't. Accomplishment. There yeah. were smart people. They were, you know, they did not have the abil- ability at the time. Um, but both girls finally finished college. So That's little awesome. ones coming up to visit. My oldest daughter loves travel. She loves. Both kids are major animal lovers, and both awesome. deal with a lot of. The abandonment and, you know, the stuff Residual that came. Of that, yeah. They do, and they are very open about it. Well, um, you know, we've, we've talked that, that I really think your book is a testament to perseverance. Um, you. you mentioned in your website and your coaching you, you're interested in working with those who are grounded in grit. What, is, what does that mean to you exactly? I, I have an idea. But. Yeah, well, I love that term, and I wish I came up with that. I did not. <laughs> but when I was coming up with the coaching business, there is a lot of shame that comes from people who've gone through a lot of trauma at Mm. times. And so when they want to ask for help, they feel needy. They feel like they're a victim. They feel like, oh, I didn't want to be in this situation. But the fact of the matter is... They feel like a failure. Yes, they feel like a failure when really they've just been... Yes, they surely do. All of us go through things. And for people, some of us more than others, I will say. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, if you've been (laughs) dipped in grit, that means you've got a lot of, maybe a lot of work to do, but but there's a lot of good sides to it. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. And Something you can use, is that part of it? Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, so I do like to elevate stories of persistence, and I do work with those grounded in grit to help them turn their challenges into superpowers. I don't like, if I can avoid it, working with people who just want to go through one hard time to the next hard time. I'm looking for people, you know, when I do coaching, who are ready for a transformation and ready for it not to be super, you know, done in two weeks, but are willing to take a humble look at themselves and say, where can I build on these amazing strengths that I have let atrophy maybe? That's awesome. Um, I don't know that we really talked about this, but um, you did work 30 years in, in with domestic abuse survivors and probation. Can you just tell us a little bit about, I know it's hard to summarize 30 years, but what, what are some of the things you took away from that experience and that you use now in your coaching with others and writing or whatever? I love that career. I really do. I, I had a, eventually earned a master's degree in psychology, but I didn't want to be a therapist. I love that I got to work with survivors of abuse. Survivors. In, yeah. in domestic abuse, child abuse investigations mm. for as long as I could take it. Mm. <laughs> as well as uh, 20 years in juvenile probation. And some of the kids I had from when I worked with domestic abuse survivors and they were toddlers, mm. then I did child abuse investigation, there they are again. And hey, here you are in the juvenile delinquency system. And it shouldn't be a huge surprise that uh, domestic abuse sure. can be a precursor. Sure. But I worked with individuals all along who had gone through things I couldn't imagine that made my life every day look like child's play. 
And still, some of them, not all of them, but some of them just shined and went on to have lives that were pretty amazing. Or some of them went on to have lives that you could say, well, if they didn't, frankly, murder someone, that's a huge, huge win. Mm -hmm. And so it was an honor to be able to serve people. But I also learned about the systems. And when I tell people, like, one of the things that makes me different as a speaker, I'll say, is mm -hmm. I went to work in the very system that I had felt failed me. In some ways it did. But you know what? In plenty of ways it didn't. And I, if I hadn't have worked in a government system, as an example, I would have personalized that all those years where when you work and there's so many demands and not mm -hmm. enough resources, you're like, oh, I just made a huge blunder uh, as a worker myself, and I get how that Changes can happen. Changes your perspective a yes, little bit, having that experience. It yeah. really does. As much as people can unpack personalization, I feel like the better they're going to be to be resilient. That's awesome. Um, well, I want to I mention one other thing. So in addition to your coaching and writing, you also host your own podcast called Persistence You. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what made you think, oh, this will be a good thing for me to explore? Okay. Well, thank you, Chip. I have Persistence You with Elizabeth podcast. And it was during that I was about to retire from probation. I thought I love listening to audiobooks. I love podcasts. Me too. Me too. All of it. I'm <laughs> such a junkie. Thanks, listeners. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we thank you so deeply. So I remember thinking, I do feel sorry for this generation in some ways that they don't. There was the pandemic, but mm -hmm. then also just having social media. We continue to portray lives that don't really mm -hmm. exist. And it makes for a community that feels divided and betrayed and lonely. Mm. And I know sometimes I have felt that exact same way. And I thought I'd like to have a podcast for survivors and strivers where ultimately my great goal is that people share from the heart their story before they go on to say how that informed their, their career choices or writing choices or whatever, but that they invite people into their lives instead of doing the Tony Robbins sort of Look at me, yeah. I've got it. I've got this life, you know, in the bag. Think positive. I didn't want it to be that. I want it to be a little more authentic. But it's really about hope, too, about, yes. you know, if you have that persistence, you know, there there can be another, That's right. another way, another um, outcome. Following up on that, I mean, we all go through difficult times, um, dark times. The pandemic um, exacerbated that probably or, or, or made more of that happen at home. <laughs> but... Um, do you have it? What do you tell other people who are who are going through really dark times? How, you know, how do you help them see that it may, it's not always going to be like this? Maybe or? right. That's such a great question. I feel like starting with a vision, and every person's going to have to have at least a glimmer of hope. Sure. During a dark time, that things can be or they will get better. Then have the humility to reach out for support. And if they don't find support with the very issue they're struggling with, they may have to create their own support or go to something, a similar support. As an example, I had a podcast guest who told me she was struggling with um, life-threatening anorexia, mm. but she didn't have the money to go to a residential place, you know, the insurance, all of Resources that. Resources are... Can be, can be such an obstacle. But she was creative, and so she went to Overeaters Anonymous, which I would have thought would be very different, mm -hmm. and got help that way. But it's the, it is just realizing that you're worth mm. investing in getting support. And I don't mean just going to counseling for four or five sessions and saying, I'm done. 
But if it takes going to therapy, if that's needed, plus group support, uh, peer group support, a lot of people will say, well, I just found out I'm so much more normal than that other person. And I've done that too when I've gone to peer support groups. I think that's a very natural thought, but it's not true. Mm. Uh, We get so much perspective from other people, Mm -hmm. even if we don't necessarily know them that well. Um, Be willing to go to classes. Be willing to do whatever it takes that it gets you to be the person that you wish that you want to be and you, and be be sure to find people who walk in your shoes but are a little few steps ahead of you. Oh, that made me think of another really interesting thing in your book. I thought that was uh, when you hooked up with other um, people who were going through um, kidna- having their children kidnapped, right? you know, which is probably not a support group in every city like you know Anchorage, but you got connected that. I don't remember the whole story, but I did, you went to Washington and that was very helpful to you, right? So People helpful. that had, it's hard to explain. How right. do you explain my daughters have been kidnapped and what is that, you know, that's right. just so hard to. I was so fortunate because I, it was through, you know, you mentioned Not Without My Daughter. Yes, yeah. She, Betty Mahmoudi, the author, had oh. a nonprofit organization for a minute and they helped me briefly get me involved in this study. Mm. And so I got to meet with parents in Washington, D.C., 11 other parents of kids who'd been taken all over the world. And it was so helpful to feel be like able Feel like you're to, not alone. Yes, feel like you're not alone. See what was our commonality, what were our commonalities, what made our experiences different country by country. Mm. You know, it was amazing. Well, with the interaction you had in Washington that was that was very helpful to you but um your book I think is already has been in the movie that's um arisen from that um have been encouraging to a lot of people and will continue to do so so if you're interested in connecting with Lizbeth um you can find information about her coaching her books her podcasts and events on her website lameredith.com that's lameredith.com. We'll include links in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Um, so, Lisbeth, thanks again for being here. I just have kind of one more question for you. Um, this podcast, I really kind of started it to, to try to help people maybe that have struggled with finding a place called home or, or feeling okay about that for a variety of different reasons. Um, to, to feel more at home, to feel more at peace with that. So what you went through some obviously challenging times and um, what is it today that makes you feel most at home? Oh, and I love your podcast. Uh, I, I just, the whole premise of it is so beautiful. Well, thank so you. thank you for having me today. I feel like what makes me feel at home is, and I do feel at home, especially in my apartment complex, I feel uh. so at home. Having a little <laughs> community with maybe small rituals that you develop with people that you spark rapport with. Uh-huh. So last summer, um, and it just started, you know, I've been here. There are plenty of lonely times when you're a single person sure. that moves with their cats from Alaska. <laughs> uh, cats were not happy at first. They're very well situated now. But, you know, we started a ritual of meeting at the swimming, a common swimming pool at the yeah. apartment complex. But it just developed all kinds of conversations. So the winter, like I have a walking group two days a week. We get up at 6.30. This morning was Ooh. one of them. 6.30 a.m. Good for you. And go, it was very cold. And we go walking, even from an Alaska. You're from Alaska. I know. Come People on. Say that. I nearly <laughs> froze in Indiana last week. You're already changing. I can <laughs> I'm tell. changing. Yeah, yeah. 
But developing community, even if it's just a text. I have one of my friends at the apartment complex. We watch a little reality TV, I hate to uh, tell yeah, you. Yeah. Don't judge. And so <laughs> he and I will text each other about what we thought about the episode. Oh, yeah. And it's so much fun. So That's just fun. finding a couple of people. with community. If you meet them, to volunteer. If you're not living in an apartment complex, volunteer somewhere. Get gig work. Something that forces you to develop rapport with people because otherwise you'll be sitting in your home thinking, I feel so alone. Mm. Oh, that's really good advice. Well, thanks again, Elizabeth, and thanks to all of you for listening. Chip, I love being here. Thank you. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.